You are listening to the weekly podcast at Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Good to see everyone. Genesis chapter 37 is where we are going to start. We're actually going to do a lot of turning today in Scripture, but we'll start in Genesis 37. I will uh, pick up in verse 2. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhi and Zilpi, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel, that's Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, here's my dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? In other words, in the Hebrew, are you crazy, Joseph? So they hated him even more for his dreams, for his words. Verse 9, and then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brother. So Joseph has zero awareness, right? Like he didn't learn his lesson the first time. I got another dream I want to tell you. And he says, behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were also bowing down to me. But when they told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the same in mind. Joseph was a dreamer, and God's people have always been dreamers. As long as God has been in relationship with people, he has been giving them dreams. And when I say dreams, I don't just mean in the literal sense, uh, like we see here, you know, whenever you're asleep and God gives you dreams, though I do believe that is something he can do, but I mean it in a much broader sense. Maybe it's a vision for your future and the role that God wants you to play in his mission. Or maybe it's a prophetic word that someone has spoken over your life, or it's just this gut sense that this is going to happen, or it's an idea in your mind's eye that you cannot quite shake. Maybe it's a dream that has to do with your career and the kind of job that you believe God wants you to work. Maybe it has to do with a relationship. It's a vision for your marriage or for your children. Maybe your dream is connected to your character and the kind of man or woman that you believe that God has called you to be, to grow into and and to mature into. Or maybe your dream has to do with a justice issue of something in the world that's broken that you believe God has called you to fix. Maybe it has to do with a business that you want to start or a church you want to plant. But whatever it is, my guess is today, no matter who you are in the room or how you walked in here, whether you're introverted or extroverted, whether you consider yourself to be logical or emotional, whether you uh, would say that you're artistic or mathematic, whether you're young or old, each of us in here today, I believe, has a dream deep inside of our hearts, or maybe two dreams or three dreams or four dreams. And my guess is, if you are a disciple of Christ, at least some part of that dream has been birthed inside of you by the Holy Spirit to keep you 
and to keep me from falling into the tyranny of the urgent, to settling for the status quo, from getting sucked into the vortex of busyness and materialism to where we just waste our lives on things that in the end do not matter at all. And therefore, because of this, because dreams serve, I believe, as a roadmap or a compass that lead us down the path that God has marked out for us, dreams play a key role in our discipleship to Jesus. Because dreams actually guide us into our God-given identity and calling, into becoming the man or the woman God has created us to be so that we can do the things that God has created us to do. So dreams are important, but here's the thing. Dreams can also be a bit tricky because when it comes to a dream, there's always a gap between the dream that God puts inside of our heart and the fulfillment of that dream. And from my experience and what we're going to see in Scripture, that gap is anything but a straight line. It's a zig and it's a zag. It's an up and it's a down. It's a two steps forward and it's one step back. And in the, in the gap, what, what we often do is we go through the whole gamut of emotions. I mean, on one hand, right, we, we get the dream and we feel hope and anticipation and I cannot wait for this moment and faith. But then in the gap, we also tend to experience despair and disappointment and doubt and sometimes even cynicism. And so, therefore, in light of that reality, what I want to do today is I want to talk about dreams. And I want to talk specifically about how we can live and live well in the gap between the dream that God gives us for our lives and the fulfillment of that dream. And to help us get there, what I want to do is I want to take time to look at Joseph's story. And and because of time, there's no way we can look at all of it. But I want to pull some key moments out of his story because I believe Joseph's story absolutely serves as a template for how we today in 2018 can learn to live and live well in that middle ground between the dream and the fulfillment of that dream. Does that make sense? Okay, one person. This is going to be a good day. (laughs) Woo! Okay, all right, so here we go. Chapter 37, we're going to actually pick up now in verse 12. Chapter 37, verse 12. Now Joseph's brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock in Shechem? Come now, and I will send you to them. So Israel comes to Joseph and says, Hey, you need to go to where your brothers are. Now look at verse 18. They, talking about Joseph's brothers, saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against Joseph to kill him. Which, by the way, makes me feel a lot better about my own parenting. Our kids have issues, but at least they don't want to kill each other. So, verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this, what's the word? Dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams then. So the brothers conspire to kill Joseph, but then all of a sudden, after they throw him into a pit, they see this caravan of slave traders come by, and one of them gets the bright idea. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Instead of killing this dude, like, how about we just sell him and make some money off of him? Okay, so verse 28, look at this. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is this. Notice that Joseph has a dream, 
And then the very next story that we look at is the exact opposite of that dream. Joseph has a dream that his brothers are going to be bowing down to him. But in the very next story, he goes into slavery. And not only are his brothers not bowing down to him, but he's about to be bowing down to a bunch of others. He's not a master. He's actually a slave. And if you know the story, like to make matters worse, what happens is Joseph still does the best he can as a slave. He works for this man named Potiphar. He does a pretty good job for Potiphar. But eventually he has a run-in with Potiphar's wife. He's falsely accused of something. And then he gets imprisoned as a result of what he was falsely accused for. And then flip over to chapter 40 and look what happens next. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. So Joseph is in prison. And it says, some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So now here is the baker. Here's the cupbearer. They're with Joseph in prison. We don't have time to read it all. But basically what happens next is the cupbearer and the baker have dreams. And they're really distraught because they don't know the meaning of the dream. And Joseph says, hey, well, I will interpret it for you. So he interprets the dreams. Within three days, they both come to pass. The baker is put to death, and the cupbearer is restored to the right hand of the king. Okay, so, so this happens. And then look, as a result, what happens next. Verse 6. Verse 6. I'm sorry. Actually, let's move on right here to verse 23. Chapter 40, verse 23, Joseph interprets the dream. The cupbearer goes to the right hand of the king of Egypt. And rather than remembering Joseph for what he did for him, verse 23, it said, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. So Joseph is now interpreting the dreams of others, but his own dreams are still unfulfilled. And just imagine like what this experience must have been like. I mean, imagine being Joseph. You have this dream, you have this thing that you believe is from God, and yet literally your life now seems to be going 180 degrees in the exact opposite direction. The cupbearer has his dream, and three days later comes to pass, and he's doing well, and yet Joseph has his dream, and he's still sitting here in a dungeon rotting. And, and if you go on to chapter 41, look what happens next. Some time passes. Chapter 41, verse 1, it says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So now everyone's dreaming. It's like the thing to do, okay? Pharaoh has a dream, but he gets distraught he doesn't know what it means. Verse 8, it says, So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent, he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of his wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my fences today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the kingdom of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And look at verse 12. A young Hebrew was there with us. So he doesn't even remember Joseph's name anymore. He's like some young Hebrew was there with us, right? And, and then look at this. He says, um, when we told him, he interpreted the dreams to us, given an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Verse 14, and then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph and they quickly brought him out, to the, or out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came and he stood before Pharaoh. 
So now there's a twist in the story, right? Out of nowhere, Joseph goes from this dungeon to now right in front of the most powerful man on the earth during this time. And look at verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is one who can, and I've heard that there's no one who can interpret it, but I've heard it said that whenever you hear of a dream, you can interpret it. So verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh. Look at this. He says, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So I just want you to notice for a moment here, all of the cocky ego now is gone in Joseph. What was once there has now been beat out of him by years of prison and hardship. He says, I can't do this, but God can do this. And so he interprets the dream, right? Pharaoh tells the dream, Joseph interprets it, and then skip down to verse 39. Let's get into verse 39. After Joseph interprets the dream, the Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you. There's none so discerning and wise as you. So when Joseph was young, he was an arrogant fool, but now he's marked by humility, and he's considered the wisest man in the empire. And then look at verse 40. So he says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. So finally, Joseph's dream is starting to come to pass, right? The slave is made a ruler. But notice, there's still no brothers in the story, right? It's been years since the dream and years since we've seen the brothers. But flip over to chapter 42 because now there's a famine in the land. And so Israel comes to uh, Joseph's brothers and says, look, we're going to starve to death unless you leave our land and you go to Egypt and you buy food. And so Joseph's brothers head to Egypt to buy food. And guess who they run into when they get to Egypt? Little brother Joseph. And so look what happens next. Chapter 42, verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him and their faces to the ground. Are you picking up on this? Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, we come from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So just imagine this for a moment. I mean, you're at work, and all of a sudden your brothers walk into the room. The same brothers who sold you into slavery, who left you for dead. And this whole time that you've been going through all of this hardship, you've had this question in the back of your mind uh, of God, was that dream from you or was I crazy? Like, did you actually call me to that? Is this what you, were, you had for my life? Or, or, I mean, did I miss it? I mean, God, are you with me? Have you abandoned me? That's there. And then, bam, out of nowhere, here come the brothers, and they're bowing down in front of you just like the dream. That's what's going on. And then if you flip over to chapter 43, a few more years go by, another famine hits. And then in chapter 43, verse 26, look what happens. Eventually, the brothers go back to Egypt to buy food. They run into little brother Joseph again. And it says whenever, um, verse, where are we at? 20, yes, 26. When Joseph came home, they, talking about the brothers, brought into the house to Joseph the present that they had with them. And look at this. And they bowed down to him to the ground. So now, like, are you picking up on this? Like, not once, but twice. We see them bowing down to Joseph just as he saw in the dream. And then we have some more drama. And eventually Joseph cannot keep it in anymore. If you go over to chapter 45, verse 1. 45, verse 1. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. 
So no one stayed with him, and Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And then verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And rightly so. I mean, they're sitting there, and they're like, dang, man, this is little brother Joseph, who we sold into slavery, and now he's the second most powerful man in the world, and we are in his hands. So they're terrified at this point. And then look at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. You can just imagine me like, oh, please, no. Like, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sowed into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sowed me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine... For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be another, there'll be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And look at verse eight. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. Like what an incredible story. And this is just the short version. We don't have time to read it all, but I encourage you to go back and read it sometime for yourselves. But here's just what I want you to do. I want to now make some application for our own lives. And there's so much in here that we can learn about living well between the gap of the dream and the fulfillment of the dream. But I just want to show you four things. They notice four things about Joseph's dream that we can apply to our own lives. And here's what I want you to see. When the dream finally comes to pass for Joseph, notice it is one different two harder, three longer, and four better. I want to say a short word on each. First off, Joseph's dream when it finally came to pass was different. Did you notice how in Joseph's initial dream, all of his brothers are bowing down to him? He sees that, but he doesn't see Egypt. He doesn't see slavery. He doesn't see prison. He doesn't see famine. So he sees a little, but Joseph is blind to a lot. And that's the way dreams are. Because, listen very carefully, the point of a dream, guys, listen very carefully. The point of a dream when God gives it is not primarily to tell you what is going to happen in the future, but it's to tell you how to live in the present. I'm going to say that again. The the point of a dream, whether that be a vision that God gives you in the future, this gut sense of what you believe is going to happen, or this picture in your mind's eye that you can't shake, the point of a dream is not to tell you what's going to happen in the future, but it's to show you how to live in the present. And the reason this is so important for us to get is because we all want to know the future. Because we are told that knowledge is power. And we are told that if we can know the future, then maybe we can control the future. And if we can control the future, guess what? Then we don't have to trust God. And if we can be honest, guys, as Americans, who in here really wants to have to completely trust God? I was talking with a... Uh, a woman that our missional community is, is working with. She is a, a, a Muslim refugee from Ethiopia. And about four weeks ago, I was taking her to government housing to work on some paperwork. And she looked at me and she said, Pastor Jared, why do you Americans not trust your God? It was pretty convicting. And I, I sat there and I thought about it. I said, well, Haji, I guess because we've never had to. I mean, if we get sick, we go to the doctor and get medicine. If we're hungry, we just go to the grocery store and we get food. And I started thinking, and I was like, you know, I I really am thankful for our modern conveniences, but if we're not careful, they're going to keep us from doing the main thing that God wants from us, which is to simply trust him. What God wants from us more than anything is to decline in anxiety and arise in trust and hope and surrender. More than God wants us to have control, he wants us to have faith. 
And that is why when God gives you a vision for your future or a dream or a passion or an ambition of what you want to see happen in the future, he will rarely ever paint a clear and detailed picture of what it's going to look like. And oftentimes when you get there, it looks much different than we thought it was going to look. So dreams are different. Secondly, dreams are harder. Again, notice that when Joseph gets his dream, he sees a picture in his mind's eye of his family bowing down to him. But what he doesn't see is a slave trade. He doesn't see Potiphar's wife. He doesn't see a dungeon. He doesn't see the years of nothing. So in the initial dream, get this, Joseph sees all of the good and none of the bad. And oftentimes, I think the same can be said for us, that when we get a vision for the future, we tend to romanticize it. We imagine a future that is warm and fuzzy and we're prancing through a field with flowers and butterflies and there's Instagram filters over everything. We're never going to be sad again. And unless that's a future, unless that's a vision of heaven, like, guys, that's just not reality. On this side of heaven, like, we live in a broken world, so there is no dream that when you get there, you're just going to be perfectly content and happy. And I think that um, maybe I can explain it like this, if you need an example. How many of you in here are married? Raise your hand. All right, awesome. How many of you in here are not married but want to be married someday? Anybody? Thank you for being honest, Derek. Okay, I see a few. Okay, all right, good. Um, Here's the thing about marriage. Marriage is a great thing. But marriage will absolutely crush you if you go into it with too high of expectations. I just did counseling with a couple this past week. They've been married for 25 years. In many ways, you look at their life. They've got beautiful children. They're incredibly wealthy, have a lot going for them. But I sat with them as the wife cried this past week, and she said, I need to grieve the death of everything I thought my marriage would be, but that it's not. And I think, you know, that lady is probably speaking for a lot of people who go into marriage with too high of expectations who go into marriage believing the lie that there is a man or there is a woman who is out there who can complete me. Guys, let me tell you the truth. The truth is because every single person you meet is imperfect, there is no perfect fit for you. Um, Best case scenario when you get married is you'll find someone whose sin kind of fits with your sin. Okay? That's best case scenario. Um, Tim Keller says it like this. On one level, every single person you meet is a bad fit for you. Some of you are like, wow, Jerry, that's really cynical. Yeah, and it's biblical. Because listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 28. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you from this. And you think I'm cynical. That's a Bible verse. One of the reasons I think divorce is is so high in our culture, guys, is listen, please hear me, is we go into marriage with stars in our eyes. And we believe some Hollywood version of it. We romanticize it to a point that is beyond reality. So whenever reality hits, we don't have a clue what to do. We just think, maybe I should just hit eject and go try to find like some unicorn out there that will be able to fulfill me. And, and, And please, like, hear me, like, there should be romance in marriage. You should be creative to the best of your ability. You should surprise one another. You should serve each other with a Christ-like love. Marriage should have romance in it, but you need to realize marriage is much harder than you think it's going to be. It is. 
And it's not just true of marriage. This is true of anything that God calls us into. And some of you need to hear that today because you believe the lie because you listen to some pastor on TBN or I don't know where else you might have got it from. But the lie that says when you follow Jesus, life's going to be easier for you. Or when you follow Jesus, you're going to get health, wealth, and prosperity, guys. And that is nowhere in Scripture. And what we're reminded of here whenever we look in Genesis at the story of Joseph is dreams are not only different than we think, but they're often harder than we think. We're all going to have time, guys, in the pursuit of our vision that, and in pursuit of that dream where we say, God, where are you? God, what's going on? God, did I hear you right? Dreams are always harder. But not only are dreams different and harder, but as long as I'm just here to encourage you this morning, and dreams are often also longer. If you do the math, it is 22 years between the initial dream that God gives Joseph and the fulfillment of that dream. A lot of times we read it, the Bible, and we're like, oh, it's only four pages. 22 years between his dream and the fulfillment of that dream. I think about some of my own dreams in my life. Uh, back in 2008, I was convinced God had called me to plant this church in Paragould. 2008, it was a dream that I had, but it was not until 2012 that I planted it. I mean, in 2008, when I got it, I'm like, okay, God, how does Thursday sound? Like, let's go plant it today, you know? But then it's over four years later that it finally comes to pass. So whether it's four years or 22 years, there is almost always a gap between a dream and the fulfillment of the dream. And here's what I've found out. Typically, the larger the dream, the longer the wait. And the shorter the dream, the shorter the wait. But either way, there's a waiting period, and the wait is typically longer than we think it's going to be. I think about that one like throwaway line in chapter 41, verse 1, where it says, After two whole years... Talking about after two years of Joseph being in prison, then he went and stood before Pharaoh. Do you realize that for two years, guys, Joseph was in prison without a word from God? For two years, he's sitting in prison by himself, and there's not the Holy Spirit doesn't like draw a picture on the wall of like, hey, here's where you are in the process. Don't freak out. You're right where you're supposed to be. Right? I mean, there's, there's, there's no community around him to encourage him and say, hey, brother, remember Romans 8.28, God works together all things for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Don't give up. I mean, Joseph is all alone. There's not one worshiper of the one true God there with him. He's stuck there, and he's waiting for two years by himself. And it's a reminder to all of us today that our dreams always have a gap between the dream and the fulfillment of that dream, and typically that gap is longer than we think it's going to be. And listen, this is why this is so important for you to get this morning. Please listen. Some of you in here are look and you covet the lives of other people who seem to be ahead of you, whether in their career or how much money they make or in their family. And sometimes I think we look at them and we forget how hard it was for them and how long it took them to get to where they are today. I, I was talking to someone just last year who told me, um, hey, Jared, I, I, I really covet your life which is interesting to me that anybody covets the life of a pastor. But I was like, okay, well, go on. And they said, I really covet your life, man, because you're getting to do the very thing that you believe God called you to do. And everything just worked out just right where you were able to step into that. And you make pretty good money, good enough money to where your wife can stay home and she can do what she believes God called her to do. And so, yeah, man, I'll be honest, I'm kind of jealous of that. I kind of covet that. And what I said to this person is, man, do you realize, like, I've been doing what I've been doing for 15 years. I've been in this career for 15 years, and the first year, you know, first two years, you know how much money I made as a minister? I made $500 a month with no health insurance. And then I went off to seminary where I lived in a 10 by 10 room, where literally in this room, right, I shared a one bathroom with 12 other people, only one of which spoke English as their primary language. 
On top of that, I also, while reading a thousand pages a semester and walking around with Greek note cards trying to memorize those things, I also worked nearly a full-time job in order to try to put food on the table. Then after that, whenever, you know, Megan and I finally decided to plan a church, she was pregnant with our very first child. We had no idea where our income was going to come from. And so I worked a job on top of also trying to plant this church. And I, and I don't share any of that to say, oh, Jared, you've had it so hard. But I share that because I think it's so easy to look at the lives of others and forget that it takes people a long time to get where they are, whether it's in their career or their marriage or, or fill in the blank. And I'm not saying today that we shouldn't look ahead and we shouldn't maybe at times look at where other people are to think about where we are. But listen, guys, listen very carefully. You have your own journey. And you have your own unique calling that God has put on your life. And nobody, nobody gets there overnight. Dreams are different. They're harder. They're longer. But finally, listen to this, they're also better. They're better. I'm not sure if you've noticed this in the story, but Joseph's dream went through a death, burial, and resurrection. And when the dream came back alive, it came back better than he could have ever imagined. When Joseph first has his dream, notice he thinks it's all about his glory. I mean, in chapter 37, literally his ego was dripping off the page. And eventually Joseph did get glory, but man, it came at a high cost. And what we discover is really in the end, the dream wasn't even about Joseph at all. The dream was about Joseph saving his family. And more important than that, it was about saving the family of God, the very family line that Christ himself would descend through so that we could all experience salvation. So the dream was better than he could ever imagine. But listen to this, guys. Before God could bring the dream to pass, he had to strip it of all of Joseph's ego and idolatry. All of this sense that maybe the dream is better than the dream giver. He had to strip it of all that. And so he sent Joseph this waiting period. He allowed him to experience hardship so the dream could be stripped down to its raw essence that actually was from God. And the reason this is important for us is, listen, just as God sends Joseph's dream through a death, burial, and resurrection, I believe it's the same thing that he often has to do for you and for me. Because like Joseph, we all struggle with sin. Because like Joseph, we all tend to care more about our own glory than God's glory. Because we all tend to be more concerned about building our kingdom than God's kingdom. Sometimes God will send you and he'll send me through this waiting period. He will allow, listen guys, he will allow the initial dream to die. So that as we continue to trust him, he will through the process grow us and set us free and mature us into the kind of people who finally can steward the fulfillment of the dream with wisdom and humility and Christ-like character. I love the part of this story where it says Joseph's brothers finally run into Joseph in Egypt and they don't even recognize him. And the reason I love that is I think that's a picture of what God wants to do in our own lives. When we finally open up our hearts to the dreams that God has for us, when we learn to walk by faith, when we learn to be patient in the way, and when we learn to trust God even when it makes no sense whatsoever, What we will find is over time, God will use it if we'll trust him to transform us more into the likeness of Christ so that those who know us before the journey don't even recognize us anymore. And it'll be a beautiful thing. And listen, I know waiting is so hard, guys, especially for some of my personality. If you look at any of my personality tests, I'll sum it up for you. Basically, I want things yesterday. And so like living in the future is really easy for people with my personality. Living in the present, not so much. Right, babe? It's not always easy. So waiting, I know, is hard, but here's the thing. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this. 
It's never a good thing, guys, when your dreams come to pass too soon. And if you don't believe me, just Google Justin Bieber. Okay? <laughs> or, or, or think, I mean, think about the athlete, right, who his whole life he wanted to be an NBA star. And his character, basically his dreams outrun his character. So, so what happens, he leaves college too early. He gets a big paycheck and he's like, I'm going to buy four Lamborghinis. And he starts smoking pot and partying. And before you know it, right, he absolutely wrecks his life. That is a picture of what happens whenever your dreams come to pass too soon, when they outrun your heart. Literally what ends up happening is you end up making your dream your God rather than a gift from God so the dream terminates on you. We end up believing the lie that the dream can do more for us than the giver of the dream. We believe the lie that the dream can somehow satisfy us and make us content. When Listen, guys, the reality is no dream can do that. No marriage can do that. No amount of kids or type of kid can do that. No career, no whatever, you fill in the blank. Only the one true God ultimately can satisfy you. He is the greatest dream. And here's the good news this morning. You don't have to wait for that dream in the distant future. You don't have to wait for that because Jesus Christ has come and lived a perfect life you and I can never live because he died a death we deserve to die on the cross and rose from the dead. We now, because of his life, death, and resurrection, can have God right here and right now, which means we don't have to wait for satisfaction. We can be content today. We can be satisfied and fulfilled today. You can experience, guys, the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for right now, no matter where you are in your journey. Whether you're working your dream job or you're just making minimum wage and barely getting by. Whether you're married or you're single. Whether you have kids or no kids. You can right now, because of Jesus, have the deepest desires of your heart met in him. And so each week, one of the ways that we remind ourselves of this is by partaking of communion. And this is not meant to be some sort of empty ritual. This is meant to be a time where literally we grab a piece of bread... And we dip it in the juice. And the reason God gave us food to remind us of what he's done for us is through food. Here's what happens. Literally, when you partake of communion, you're reminded that just as I need something outside of myself to sustain me physically, food, I need Christ to sustain me spiritually. And not just to sustain me, but to satisfy me. And if you're here today and you are a disciple of Jesus today, I want to encourage you to come and be reminded of that truth. Maybe you've been believing the lie that one day I'll out there, when I finally finish that degree, then I'll be satisfied. When we can finally have kids, then I'll be happy. Guys, that is a lie from hell. Your happiness and your joy is tethered in your creator, not in the creation. And so come be reminded that today, because of Jesus, you have access to the very one who gives you your heart's desires. And if you're here today, listen, and you are not a disciple of Jesus, you're not a Christian, rather than receiving communion, receive Jesus. Please hear me, guys. Some of you know this is true. You have been working like a dog. You're running feverishly looking for contentment, and you keep hitting a wall, keep hitting a wall, keep hitting a wall, keep hitting a wall. What's wrong with me? I'm telling you guys, you will never be satisfied apart from Jesus Christ. Ever. Edge that in stone. And so for you today, I would encourage you, rather than receiving communion, receive Christ. And if you want to know more about how to do that, you can come and talk to me. But before we take communion, here's the deal. In light of the message today, remember every single week, we're encouraging you to practice what we have been talking about, what we've been teaching on, to apply the teaching to your life. And so before we head out, here's what I want to encourage you to do this week as a practice in light of this. 
I want to encourage you to give yourself permission to dream this week and to dream well. And by dream well, here's what I mean. Don't dream about yourself. Don't dream shallow. I want a bigger house or a new car or a new cell phone. Don't dream the American dream, but dream into your God-given identity and calling. Open up your mind's eye to the Holy Spirit and let God drip a dream into your soul. And listen to me. We're about done. Listen. When the dream is different, trust God. That's what he's after. That's where freedom is found. And when the dream is harder, don't give up. So many people turn away. Listen, guys, they, they bail before the dream is ever realized because they believe the lie that it's called, that because it's hard, it must be bad. Stay with it. And when the dream is longer, wait. Be patient. That might be the word some of you need to hear today. Be patient. Have faith that God is going to use the process to conform you more in the image of Jesus. And when the dream is better, call up all your friends and have a party. Celebrate who God is and what he's done in your life. And remember in the process, guys, listen, remember, again, the dream cannot be better than the giver of the dream.